Among the wounded, some seemed dumb and without understanding, and some were pale through the masks of dust, and some had fouled themselves or tottered brokenly onto the spears of the savages. Now driving in a wild frieze of headlong horses, with eyes walled and teeth cropped, and naked riders with clusters of arrows clenched in their jaws and their shields winking in the dust, and up the far side of the ruined ranks and a piping of bone flutes, and dropping down off the sides of their mounts with one heel hung on the wither strap, and their short bows flexing beneath the outstretched necks of the ponies until they had circled the company and cut their ranks in two and then rising up again like funhouse figures, some with nightmare faces painted on their breasts, riding down the unhorsed Saxons and spearing and clubbing them, and leaping from their mounts with knives and running about on the ground with a peculiar bandy-legged trot, like creatures driven to alien forms of locomotion, and stripping the clothes from the dead and seizing them up by the hair and passing their blades about the skulls of the living and the dead alike, and snatching aloft the bloody wigs, and hacking and chopping at the naked bodies, ripping off limbs, heads, gutting the strange white torsos, and holding up great handfuls of viscera, genitals. Some of the savages so slathered up with gore they might have rolled in it like dogs, and some who fell upon the dying and sodomized them with loud cries to their fellows. And now the horses of the dead came pounding out of the smoke and dust, and circled with flapping leather and wild manes, and eyes whited with fear, like the eyes of the blind. And some were feathered with arrows, and some lanced through, and stumbling and vomiting blood, as they wheeled across the killing ground and clattered from sight again. Dust. It's your death sentence for this week. The final one of the year. Before I, I take my sabbatical, I go into the mountains and get the novel written, and Langman takes over and doesn't ever speak about anime on this show, ever. Or video games. Um, Gamers rise up! You can, you can stop doing that. You can just stop. <laughs> just get, get out of your system now, please. I'm not... Alright, I'll do one more and then I'll be done. Gamers rise up! All right, I'm good. <laughs> just fucking... Oh, Jesus. Right. Uh, we've got on the show, final show of the year, great, great guest, uh, Leslie Lederford. So good, they made him three times. And he is, I think, the main guy. We can, we can say it. The other guys aren't here. Yes. The main guy of Struggle Session. What a, yes. My personal favorite podcast because it's so damn good. Oh, thank you. Yes, I am in uh, the death sentence. Um, very happy to be here and talking books and shit. Um, mm-hmm. Yes, I am the best one, the main one from Struggle Session. I do have to say, I'm the host. Jonathan, Daniel Brown, and Jack Allison are the co-hosts. And I, I gotta be real with you, they don't read books. Yeah. I, I don't know what the thing is. They just can. They just don't. Can they read? Uh, can they read? Um, I, I don't know. It's the it's out. I'm not sure yet. I mean, because you know, they're, 
they're Hollywood guys, you know. They never had to, you know, do this hard, you know, book reading. Like they here's what Jack would do when he was like working for the Jimmy Kimmel show, making all that money and he would just like hire a boy to read books to him that he heard about. And that's that's the most he would do as far as like reading goes. Like that's it's Yo, that's word up. Sweet. Anyone anyone listening who needs a reading boy, I'm available. <laughs> I'll read anything. I'll read literally anything. And we do for this show. Yeah. But, um, so what what's uh, Struggle Session about, in case anyone has listened to this but not to the infinitely superior Struggle Session? <laughs> well, thank you. I don't know. We're, we're, too, we're superior to a lot of podcasts. I don't know about this one, but a lot of them. But basically, no, you're superior to this. Yeah. <laughs> basically, what we do is we talk about um, pop culture, nerd culture, books, movies, video games, anime, all, all that together from a leftist perspective but from a leftist perspective that isn't just wagging its finger and saying oh no this has bad politics so you can't like it like no we say that a lot of the stuff we enjoy are a lot of the stuff that's that creators that we enjoy may have terrible politics we're talking about one today actually um they may not have our leftist politics but we can still get something from their art because that's what art is about it's not about the individual who makes it not necessarily always about the political message it's about what you can get from it what does it teach you about the human experience and that's something that we encourage on struggle session that people you know open their minds that you can be a good leftist and also enjoy something like say 24 but we can also celebrate something like sorry to bother you which has good politics too yeah yeah and have that, the, that t- oh, oh sorry go ahead oh yeah that 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 touches on something that's sort of like a pet issue of mine since i have uh like like my co-host here have have a way too expensive degree about how i read a lot of books that one time um but a a big issue that comes up especially in pop critique and pop leftist critique that's easily shareable but isn't always satisfactory to me on a critical end is it sometimes writes out the notion of the agency of the audience member to have like it's not like you simply passively receive themes from a work you you can actively like, like what you were saying you can you can approach something that has politics that are different slash worse than yours and still selectively pull out chunks. That's sort of the power of having a conscious mind and yes. agency with with being an audience member. You aren't required to just accept everything that it gives you. And, and a lot of uh, that's something I like a lot about your podcast is that you there's a lot of people that ignore that. And so their whole analytic is based on it's good or bad based on if you accept all of the premises of the yeah. work. And yeah, like, yeah, I talk like, about H.P. Lovecraft. He's my favorite writer, and like, I've gotten into arguments with well-meaning leftists about how, no, you cannot separate his racism from the rest of his horror. I'm like, of course you can. Like, I, I, if I can do it, I know you I can you. do it. You're white, too. Like, <laughs> I, like there's it's no problem because, I mean, there would be no such thing as a Lovecraftian work if the racism was, you know, so tied to it. Like, something like Hellraiser, which takes tons from Lovecraft. There's no ra- there's no racism in Hellraiser. Um, but that but it still has that same Lovecraftian element of horror. So that means even in the original work with the racism there, there was something else. There's something else that you can take and appreciate and actually kind of say the racism is just a flaw in the work, as all works have flaws. 
Hmm. Yeah, Gareth and I have talked a lot about that on the show, actually. Yeah, specifically um, with Lovecraft. He came up, yeah. we did like a double episode on pretty much all Lovecraft stuff. It basically uh, was like, I, I was just a guest until we had like a series of bangers back to back about that. It's <laughs> like, yo, what if we just do this forever? Um, let's get <laughs> podcast married. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's like a lot of work take, takes the uh, tack of if you imagine that the the point of view character in Lovecraft's work tends to go insane because they can't accept the difference or the banality of humanity and the greater universe, then all of a sudden he's writing it from a racist point of view, but it's like the racism of his point of view characters and their inability to see beyond themselves is what drives them insane. The monster is yeah. not bad. It's just there. Um, and they go nuts because they just can't. They're like, a black person! And then they go in totally insane. Um, and the guy's like what my name's paul what what's up <laughs> and my, my favorite thing about talking about lovecraft now that i've discovered while i'm getting my big degree about um book a very expensive uh degree about books uh that i've read is that i've discovered that lovecraft by the end of his life was actually a socialist uh yeah yeah very um, shocking and surprising, but he was a type. He, by the end of his life, he was a type of socialist, and he was definitely. And all those, you know, all those leftists who have read anti-capitalistic themes in Lovecraft and the Lovecraftian horror, um, you were right. That is actually how he felt about capitalism. He did not like capitalism. Now he didn't like it because the reasons we dislike it because it grinds people. Uh, poor people in the pulp. He disliked it because it turned people like him, who would have been, you know, nobility and men of letters and scholars, into like shopkeepers and stuff. Like he saw that as a degradation. So he same. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, same <laughs> thing. Really, I think we could. I think we could come to a middle ground uh, with Lovecraft if he had lived for another hundred years. Lovecraft, go on, Chapo. <laughs> um, actually they did like f five episodes about him already so i think he's pretty much covered by them Lovecraft, um, you don't need to go on chat though you can keep no. being dead you can yeah. keep on <laughs> he does sound kind of like a bernie bro though honestly yeah oh yeah he definitely bit. would like bernie sanders <laughs> he would he would have he would have a little fucking do dorky ass uh rose emoji thing <laughs> yeah he's an old guy from new england who can't love bernie um but we're here to talk about Blood Meridian because I think it was on, was it on Pod Down America that you said that you were reading this and you loved this book and it's awesome? Probably, right? Probably, yes. Um, yes, Blood Meridian. I've read it before. I was reading it again for some uh, some coursework and it uh, it's, it's lit, fam. It's, it, uh, it is lit. That's, that's not a lie. <laughs> Yeah, this novel, of course, um, I think most people, I think it's safe to say that this is generally considered the most uh, Cormac McCarthy, uh, Cormac McCarthy book. It has everything that he's kind of known for, just, you know, very um, lots of simile, metaphor, uh, uh, sprinkled all, all throughout every sentence, um, not using punctuation, um, brutal, brutal violence told in a very flat effect. It has it all. This is the Cormac McCarthy book that everyone 
should read. Now, No Country for Old Men is a lot easier because it's basically like the script for the movie. Like, there's not like if you've seen the movie, you've basically the book is almost exactly the same. And it's a very uh, still f- very fun read, but Blood Meridian is the is the real one. It's a, it's a real one. I would definitely recommend that if you're really ready to take a deep dive into. Uh, what Carmen McCarthy is, why people like his writing so much, I would definitely recommend uh, going for this one. And it's not even just like the deepest encapsulation. It's also in a lot of ways like the thesis of his entire body of work. Like leading up to it, you see bits and pieces of the thoughts coming together, like the All the Pretty Horses trilogy. And I forget the name of his first book, the one that's like a light comedy, which is weird uh, (laughs) that he would write that. Um, But he drops Blood Meridian, and you can tell in all the work after that he had a shift of mind, because it feels like every book after Blood Meridian takes a bit of it and tries to sort of dialectically engage with it. Like, he can't really escape it. He hasn't presented so much a new thought since Blood Meridian as he has responded to his own book. Like, even even something like The Road, which to people who haven't read a lot of Cormac McCarthy, reads as incredibly dour, in the shadow of Blood Meridian, feels like, well, at least the kid's dad loved him. (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah, I've been talking a lot about, you know, how the road in comparison has, like, a happy ending. It's upbeat. It's actually Cormac McCarthy uh, is probably, you know, sunshiniest because at the end (laughs) of the day, like, there is still goodness in the world at all and some and the good and goodness will always find the boy which is one of the la- uh one of the last things that goes through the father's mind before he um dies <laughs> but people <laughs> like that book that book in that in the film too destroy people but that's actually like Cormac McCarthy like giving you a little bit of ray of hope yeah he's and very then, he, oh you go on there is no rays of hope in Blood Meridian Oh, I, I tried to. No, <laughs> yeah. I, I I thought I I thought I found one. Um, maybe I'm deluding myself. There was like one nice person that I found. Uh, I mean, it, there are a couple nice people. They normally but, are brutally murdered. Murdered um, yeah. by the protagonist of the novel. <laughs> or yeah. sometimes he just finds them and they're dead. Yeah, he just uh, he's like, I went back to visit that guy and he was ripped apart. Yeah, there's yeah, there are there is no hope in this novel. And I, I think on the show we've said before, there are no good conservative novelists or artists in general. And there kind of isn't. That's not really that much hyperbole. But I think Cormac McCarthy is a conservative novelist, maybe like Big C conservative. And I think Blood Meridian is a conservative book. Or it wants to be, you know. Again, definitely author. We can interpret whatever it, we want. I, but I, I read this like, oh shit! This is how a conservative sees the world, right? It's nothing but blood and death and betrayal. Everyone is out to get you. All races are complete aliens to each other. It's everything is a monstrous slog through. So a, a we- swamp of gore. A weird, a weird, a weird political benefit to Cormac McCarthy, and you can see it best in Blood Meridian, I think, is that there's two kinds of ways to sort of interpolate politics into your work when you're an artist. 
One is to, and the normal way, is you're presenting your political like end point that you come to from the experience of your life. Because one benefit of like historical materialism and you know Hegelianism and all that kind of stuff that we as le- left get bombarded with is you don't you don't think of the politics of someone as like pre-baked into them. It's something they arrive at through their life's experience. They may not. There may be a better way to do it, um, which is a lot of how we feel about conservative thought. But it comes from somewhere. Um, And so one way to handle politics and work is to just give that endpoint of like, here's what I think about the world. Like, sorry to bother you would be an example of that where he's pretty much it's in times pretty direct polemic. I agree with it, but it's still fairly it's very unambiguous what he's trying to tell you. Um, Blood Meridian is the other way, which is he gives you, these are the things that I see in the world. And from there, you can, you can very easily see how someone like Cormac McCarthy might take that and go, and that's why I need to be a conservative. But it's also very easy to look at that and see it as a thesis for the necessity of the compassion of something like socialism or anti-racism. Like, because he's just giving you the bare facts of this ugly nihilistic animal animal brutality that's baked into the world it's very lovecraftian in that kind of sense because it's it's not malicious it doesn't want to hurt it simply is like primal hurting there's no will to it it's just violence itself yeah violence and a cycle of violence that you know it's not even a cycle of violence it's like an eternal (laughs) concurrence of violence that yeah Spans from the beginning of humanity, literally the beginning of humanity, because he has a quote in the beginning, right before the book begins, from an academic paper that shows that uh, talking about how there was evidence that a a fossil that they found from 300,000 years ago had been scalped. Like, so he's saying that, like, and, you know, when he talks about when the Apaches attack uh, the company and just maraud them and murder all these um, these uh, white men who are coming, of course, coming to kill the Apaches, he describes the Apaches as wearing, like, um, suits of armor and trophies from dragons they've slain. So he's bringing in, you know, these historical artifacts to what is a mod, what at the, at the, the modern world of the novel of Blood Meridian. And so the idea, uh, kind of similar to what Philip K. Dick talks about in Vallis, where he talks about how the Roman Empire and the Nixon administration uh, exist on top of one another. Like all of this violence, all this history of violence, like it never stops, it never ends, it always exists with each other at the same time. Now, what do you do with that? Now, do you then say, all right, I have to be a conservative, I have to make a fortress out of my home, I have to get all my guns to protect myself from all these other savages because all men are savages? Or do you look at that and say, all right, this is fucked up. We need to stop this. We need to change this. We need to change this system that called, that perpetuates this violence, and we can work against it. And that's what the leftist thinks. So that's why I can really, really enjoy this novel as a leftist, even more than uh, – much more than No Country for Old Men because in No Country for Old Men, he has Sheriff Bell you know, just opining yeah. – about certain conservative virtues. Now he do, he does not the Clintons for their support of the death penalty in uh, No Country for Old Men as well. But he also talks about you know 
like the uh, the uh, drug crisis in very conservative uh, terms, what you expect from a Texas sheriff. So in No Country for Old Men, he's just telling you how, how he feels. And Blood Meridian, he's kind of telling you what his thought processes are. And you can co- go on either side of that, really. And that's what I enjoy about this novel. And I don't even though I know Cormac McCarthy is conservative, I don't feel like there's anything in this novel that leftists can really, you know, uh, dislike. Because and uh, and the main thing is, it basically is telling the story of how we committed, uh, you know, hundreds of years of violence against Native peoples, and it, it doesn't hide it, it doesn't sugarcoat yeah. it, it doesn't it, do anything. It's not sympathetic to the American. Uh, raids against uh, natives. That, that's it's very clear when you read. It. Sometimes the way people talk about it makes it seem like oh, it follows a band. And it there is I can't imagine someone actually reading this book and thinking anyone in that war band is a good person. Any of the deeds they committed were good. Um, like it, it's very even handed with the notion of violence is the disturbing thing. And sometimes we trick ourselves into acceptable or even glorious violence. And even on the left, we can fall into that. There is a question of sometimes necessity, but he holds a very firm line that it is always disgusting and disturbing, even when it feels or even potentially is necessary, which I think is um, it it reveals sort of a. A kind of paradox in his his conservatism that can come up if you get too fixated on the author, because the work itself feels very um, it views a lot of the things that we we look at as like cornerstones of a conservative ideology is very repugnant because like it doesn't I wouldn't say that Blood Meridian offers the notion that society has elements that are worth conserving like he there is nothing worth conservation in his estimation at least through the lens of blood meridian it's no. all and you know this is a time and of course there's been so much uh, you know glorification of this of our manifest destiny and then he just t- takes that whole concept and says like no these were just brutal you know, murderers and rapists be, uh, hired sab- hired animals by the government to slaughter mostly innocent people who were doing nothing wrong. They were criminals. They were thieves. They would betray one another and other people who helped them just to do it. Like there's a very there's a version of this novel where you could have you know even like I I can even imagine a liberal writing a version of this novel where the where Glanton's gang is mostly noble, but then there are certain small isolate instances that suggest that maybe you know this wasn't all good maybe you know they made some mistakes over time maybe you know looking back they should have done things differently i can imagine a liberal writing that a novel about the same band and almost glorifying them and excusing a lot of their behavior but cormac mccarthy doesn't seem interested that in that at all at every single opportunity he shows that these people are you know complete and utter villains and um, <clears throat> so, like, up one level from politics, there's, like, religion, spirituality, and that it, it's 
a massive, massive theme in Cormac McCarthy's work, and um, kind of rarely for a novel, people are reading like Gnostic themes into um, Blood Meridian. I mean, you mentioned Philip K. Dick earlier, so I'm guessing you're probably okay with the basic elements of like Gnosticism. But um, that whole Alan Bloom, another conservative thinker who's not that bad, um, his whole idea that this is like a Gnostic parable that the judge, uh, Judge Holden, who we haven't mentioned yet, but is like one of the greatest characters he's, in fiction. Yeah. Yes. Um, that he's a, a Gnostic uh, deity incarnate. An archon. Yeah. Uh, shout out to my invisible heads for Archon references. And um, <laughs> yeah, what, what do you guys make of that? Because that's, I think is, my opinion is a bit overstated. I don't think you need to go into full on like late period Philip K. Dick mode to read this. You can just read it as America and by extension humanity is fucked and always has been. I I think, so it's worth noting that he, he's always sort of grappled with the question of God and his work. That's sort of the big, um, one of the big elements within No Country for Old Men and the only, the only resistance really to its uh, like very deep conservatism is the white hat, black hat dichotomy, which is the classic Western, like good guys have the white hat, bad guys have the black hat um, embodied in that. But with them representing sort of like an all powerful, like, monotheistic god force in the body of the sheriff and then uh like a satanic evil in the act of the um in the body of of the murderer and the violence the violence between them catches humanity in the middle and humanity becomes the uh the body which suffers and so he's always sort of dabbled with those ideas and goes back to them um the road i think offers maybe the clearest statement that i don't think cormac mccarthy is very religious um yeah the but but in this the judge represents perhaps the beginning of his malice towards the notion of faith uh beginning where i don't think it's it's definitely in the book. I don't think you need it, but I think it is there for him saying like, oh, and if you think God is a recourse, if anything, God would uh, have found this acceptable and desirable. Because Judge Holden does feel very much like either an emissary of some kind of semi-divine force uh, or in the sense of either manifest destiny or literal like order to reality. Um, but also the notion of what constitutes satisfactory order by definition must include these horrible raids, the, the, the rapes and pillaging and mass violence, the, the, the scalping that occurs on both ends. Um, and so, yeah. It, and the fact that the final image of the book is the judge stripping nude and dancing like a mad pagan in front of a fire like it yeah. and proclaiming that he will never die yeah that it's, was yeah that's how i party it's, yeah so, it's it, it's such a like with with the judge like what I, how i conceive of him it's more like some sort of mystic or like a black pharaoh type figure yeah. someone in touch with something not necessarily divine but superhuman i don't think that, that literally i think that's more like a me 
a metaphysical yeah. kind of conception that I have of the judge because he because Cormac McCarthy wanted to present us uh, a character that was you know truly terrifying and what el- how else do you uh, one one of the best ways to do that is to you know present a character that is actually more powerful than like the world <laughs> that exists <laughs> yeah, and you don't really know how powerful he is in this novel because I, I one of the things that really you know creeps me out because when um, the kid finally joins up with the gang uh, someone mentions to him like every man in this gang says at one point or another they ran into the judge before joining in this gang which is of course which doesn't doesn't seem like it would really be possible right like uh, <laughs> all these disparate men from all these di- from all across america and the southwest and mexico all having ran into this man and when the kid for and you know you were mentioning about this um uh, his antipathy towards religion manifesting first showing itself with the judge. The first thing the judge does is accuse a priest who's having a, a preacher who's having a revival in, his, in, in a tent of being a pedophile, uh, and he in, he gets the whole crowd, the whole congregation, to like try to lynch the um, preacher. And then when he goes back to the bar and people are asking about it, like how you know him, like. I don't know that guy. I, I just said it, I, and everybody up just laughs about it and thinks it's the funniest thing in the world that he may have murdered uh, this innocent preacher, which is just like this initial sign of the judge's power. He is immediately more powerful than the God of Abraham. Immediately, as soon as he walks into the place, he is able to walk into a church, and he's and they mentioned that he has keeps his hat on and he smokes a cigar while he's in this makeshift church he has no respect um he has i I would say he has no fear of god and we see by the end of the novel we see why because there's nothing more powerful in this novel than the judge is he uh, he more like nietzschean then than gnostic is he like the ubermensch is he dionysian or something i i don't personally i don't think so i think to to touch on my fancy book words we have to think a little bit about liminality and the superliminal. Um, so liminality being like a thing that is literal, but starts bleeding into the realm of metaphor and idea in a way that makes it hard to precisely pin down. And the superliminal being something that is almost purely in that space. Um, I, I compare the judge in my brain. It fe- He feels very much a partner or inversion of you know, the quintessential liminal figure in American literature, the whale from Moby Dick, but where the whale represents the um, perfect naturalness of the divine to the point where humanity finds it alien only because we consider ourselves separate from it and we struggle against it, even though it doesn't have a will, it simply is the nature of reality. And all this thing, like, it's not hard to find great papers about Moby Dick. There's a reason why people dive into it. But similarly, the judge feels like this. And it reminds me a bit of like the ecstatic, like religious euphoria and ecstasy of like something like black metal that takes this like really ridiculous campy image of like Satanism and corpse paint. And depending on the band can make it extremely emotionally intense that the judge feels like this, um, that it's the malice of divine order and that it's like this, it's more like a force you can never escape, but that you never consented to and that you can't 
it can make a judgment and you can't do anything about it, regardless of how right or wrong it may be. Like it feels he doesn't feel human. He feels like this super liminal figure that just sort of emerges into reality. But I can also definitely see him as potentially as like the Anitian God Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually my black metal name. But, uh, so keep that out of your mouth. Is is Judge Holden the Goblin Slayer? <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> uh, in fact, Goblin Slayer kind of uh, parallels the plot to this. Yes. Yeah, it does, actually. <laughs> yeah. T- teenager comes up, uh, gets in with a gang who are going around committing genocide against a tribe of, like, savage peoples. It's, it's the same book. It's the same yeah. show. Uh before we go in, like, for a full uh, four hours of Goblin Slayer fan theories and fiction, uh, let's do some music, though. Uh, Leslie, you wanted us to, to jam some Chelsea Wolfe. Ah, uh, yes, absolutely, because I jammed some Chelsea Wolfe while I was um, reading, uh, rereading passages from this. She is an amazing, amazing artist, probably one of my favorite new artists of the past uh, 10 years. I would, uh, and the track I picked was uh, Iron Moon, which has a very, very um, Blood Meridian vibe to it. Cool. Yeah, I've liked her for a long time. I saw her play Same. live years ago, um, and that show was ruined by two guys in front of me just discussing how hot she was. Oh. And um, so, fuck you to those guys. I hope and, they died. Yep. <laughs> they were also very tall and very in front of me. <laughs> I really that hope that they most. died. And, um, yeah, and, uh, yeah, there was a good... Uh, Another good podcast I should plug, Toilet of Hell. They did an um, interview with Chelsea Wolfe a while back now, maybe a year back. I was really good and really got into her work. And um, she seems like a cool lady. So here's uh, Iron Moon by Chelsea Wolfe.
That was Iron Moon by Chelsea Wolfe, and we're still here, still talking about Blood Meridian with Leslie Lee the Third of the Struggle Session. Um, so okay, I've totally lost my train of thought now. Oh God, what was I going to fucking <laughs> talk about? The beauty of editing is we can replace this with Benny Hill music. The, the music of Gareth's people. <laughs> you know that British people don't like Benny Hill, right? There's like six episodes in the 70s. No one has seen it. <laughs> Americans are totally fixated on it. 
I it's bet only you're Americans lying. that think about I Benny bet, Hill. I, I bet you're embarrassed. I bet this is exactly like Blobby, which, by the way, we still have not discussed on the show. And we never will. We'll not discuss Mr. Blobby. <laughs> I, I can't believe you people let that become real. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to apologize for the crimes of my people. I, I know... <laughs> And your Lord, Bucket, your, your Lord Buckethead is way worse than the American Buckethead. I don't think he can even play guitar. <laughs> yeah, real Bucketheads at least can, can rip, but I don't know what Lord Buckethead steel is. But, um... Okay, I'm completely lost about where to, <laughs> okay. where to pick I, up. I, 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 I have a point that I can throw in. So, um, I think... So... Uh, this novel works really well for me as an example that I'll bring to people when uh, running into someone who doesn't really like extreme music, um, doesn't really get what's going on in it. And like, there, there's nothing wrong with that. There's plenty of music that I don't personally get. And it doesn't mean there's something wrong with it or that I'm an idiot or something like that. It's just, you know, we all have our own blind spots and all that kind of stuff. But I think when it comes to conveying that like primal spiritualist core where you can be, you know, an atheist socialist who looks at the condition of the world and thinks, no, we don't have any inherent salvation from the way society is structured now from an afterlife, things like that. And it's because of those things that we must join in coalition to struggle with one another for the safety and well-being of each other um, and still have spiritual experiences, still have, you know, intense uh, confrontations with certain things. And I think there's a certain necessity in that space to a confrontation with sort of the primal nihilism of the natural world, where it's not it's not beautiful or terrifying inherently. It just, but it has aspects that can, that can be both of those simultaneously. Like death is a part of life and can often be insanely brutal. Um, and it doesn't make it good that it's part of life. Like that doesn't fix the brutality, but it also doesn't, the brutality doesn't change the fact of its sort of broader existential necessity. And this where extreme music deals with that on like the experiential end of of music, which in sort of a critical way is the experience itself, not a relaying of the experience. Literature tends to be the second one, uh, similar with um, like films, where you are relaying an experience after the fact and uh Blood Meridian, I think, captures literally exactly what I feel when I have headphones on listening to, like, say, Ruins of Beverest or, um, or uh, Bell Witch, uh, especially something like Four Phantoms. Um, uh, Ch- Chelsea Wolf is another one where it's like this, like, vast, primal and primordial, uh, like, souring. Like, Mare Cognitum's records do similar stuff for me. Like, the book, reading it, even without any music on whatsoever to sort of soundtrack it, feels exactly like that. Where at a certain point, your eyes are gliding over the page. And, and this is partly a sort of also a defense of his uh, stylistic quirk of minimal punctuation. Your eyes sort of glide over and you sort of take in... You take in Blood Meridian more like it's thoughts you are having than... 
a text you are reading. And yeah, as that- a result, it starts forming this weird kind of hologram where like you're thinking more about images it's evoking, not images it's it's saying are happening. And that's where like it's easy to read the book and feel like primal devils dancing in shadow in the American Midwest, ripping bodies apart and like dancing in their like it's it's so fucking intense. Yeah, and that is why he doesn't use the punctuation when when he's asked about it, he does say that you know, it just gets in the way. Basically, he wants people to be able to experience his um, writing as directly as possible, which is, of course, important because his writing can sometimes be very, you know, hard to grasp and obtuse feeling sometimes with his love of figurative language. Like a, a lot of people, like unless you're in like a right mood mood you're gonna get stuck on a sentence like the sun lay in the holocaust in the west you can't read that line and make sense of it because it doesn't make any sense but you can feel it if you're in the right mood and um and he it's and that's why he wants to lull people into that sense that you're saying of like you know listening to blackmail or being at a rave or just losing yourself in the words in his uh lyricism i'll even say so that you aren't um you know stumbling upon all these you know uh how he uh, twists language or you don't stumble upon the fact that he starts dropping in Spanish without translation you know the things like that he 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 does a lot of things that if you aren't in the right mind frame for reading it could hang you up as a reader but once you get in that mind frame it the experience is uh, very powerful so what um apart from like extreme metal what else does that so I'm, I'm trying to think of films that have, have made me feel that way. Uh, I don't want to. I haven't actually seen Mandy, and I'm kind of loath to bring it up because I think it's like too. It, it's. It, I think it might be trying too hard. But um, it's very lit, by the way. It yeah, is, it's, and it's it actually, knows exactly what good. it is. I think, like okay. it. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't show Mandy to people going like, "Here is a pure artsy film." It's more it. It, yeah, but that, that's a digression. <laughs> it does. It's, it, Mandy is a fun movie with some sublime moments in it. Um, it knows it has Nicolas Cage as a star and uses that to its full potential. Like it really is. Like it could. It could easily been. You know, a bad movie if they weren't. <laughs> if it was made by a different, lazier, less in intelligent um filmmaker but it was made by somebody really smart doing something that a lot of people have tried to do which is turn a heavy metal album cover from the 70s into a movie um which is uh a lot of people have tried (laughs) to do that but they actually succeeded here they really really did um i think probably the um there are certain films that i think nail this kind of um the kind of feeling of blood meridian but it's something more like um experimental film like something like sam brackage or um a lot of the slow cinema stuff that which is a little micro movement that's been building steam like there's this film sleep has her house that came out last year that a friend of mine showed me which is just fucking incredible it's like three and a half or nearly four hours long it was shot in i think entirely on an iphone i think all of it's on youtube too but it's it's just this immersive very slow um 
broad like panoramic landscapes and you start getting that that sense of like weird unease of a primal power to the world that excludes you or eclipses you um and the way that that kind of starts messing with your mind where you're like i am a worm um, <laughs> like i'm inescapably a worm um the uh the most recent uh, Macbeth, I also felt, did that. The one that had uh, the entire cast and crew and director of the Assassin's Creed movie, <laughs> which is a weird Duh. factoid. <laughs> that, that movie was terrible, but the Macbeth thing that he did was the most black metal movie I have ever seen. Um, How I, I have not heard of this. It does, he look, pre- it does look really cool. It does look he really didn't cool. adjust he didn't adjust the script at all. He did it exactly the way that Shakespeare wrote it and put everyone in period dress, but he just, and he shot it in the Scottish Highlands, but he picked his moments of like where and when to shoot things that way. Like when they're in the swamps pursuing the witch, it, the witches, it has this thick, like musty fog that cloaks things. And it's all natural fog. Like he didn't make it. He just waited until it was a foggy day on a fen and then shot it in a fen and anyone who's ever been in Britain or seen pictures of Britain knows that Fens look very black metal. There's a reason there is a black metal band named after them. You know, I speaking of fi- a film, a lot of people have said Blood Meridian is an unfilmable novel. And I think a lot of it, that is true, because, of course, the primary enjoyment of it is reading Cormac McCarthy's prose. There's yeah, not the, there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is a book. It's not. It's not a screenplay. Uh, no Country for Old Men. That's that's a screenplay. And you, even all the pretty horses play, is right? a screenplay. Yeah, but Blood Marine is definitely a book. But I will say, a movie that probably captured the closest to what I think a Blood Marine film could be and still be good would probably be Valhalla Rising by Nicholas yeah. Wind and Refn. That was yeah, an I was incredible. Wind and Refn would come up. He uh, he seems to have he seems to have some aesthetic moves that are pretty similar to McCarthy's. I think even Drive, yeah, even even Drive, like this, I, like the violence in Drive is so shocking because you don't expect expect it from a guy. And I, I, I maybe I'm um, outing myself as not a true book reader. <laughs> Whenever I read a novel. I cast the characters in my head. Oh, same. I cast. I oh, okay, cool. And <laughs> that, that's that's very normal in the age. So it, I we even so funny factoid. Uh, if you dive really into the academic end of things and like descriptions of books, we have we have little letters of people writing basically about reading books in the seventeen and eighteen hundreds and casting them in their heads of like theater actors that they'd oh, cool. seen. So it's actually it's oh. super super <laughs> common. Like, so yeah, when, okay. So who I, was who was everyone's Judge Holden? Because oh, I had mine. Vincent D'Onofrio. Oh shit! <laughs> Seriously? Yes. Yeah. Same. M- mine was either oh, wow. him or same Philip time. Seymour Hoffman. I can see that. I definitely yeah. feel Philip Seymour oh, Hoffman. Yeah, he's, he's not. He doesn't Vincent quite. Vincent D'Onofrio have... is more satanic, which I think fits. Oh, yeah. 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 Especially yeah, his his private pile. Just. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's got the size. He's got the baldness. He, if they do, if they ever did the movie, it, w- it would have to be him. Because uh, oh, yeah. rest in peace, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah, uh, yeah, kind of a difficult role to play. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, when, you're, when you're dead, when you're dead. Yeah. Uh, if anyone could pull it off, to play Judge Holden, but a dead masterclass actor. 
Yeah. Now, Philip, Philip Seymour Hoffman has been getting character for playing um, Steve Bannon by being dead for five years. <laughs> <laughs> Another good cast. But uh, yeah, I could definitely see D'Onofrio on this. I, I was like hearing his big speeches in his like kingpin voice, which I, I'd, I'd love to be able to do, but I can't. I, I tried no, earlier. Yeah, I, I, I can't do but, it either. <laughs> but uh, yeah, one person in the world can do that voice. And yeah, uh, yeah I definitely definitely see it. And uh, probably like that Timothy Chalamet guy for the um, for the kid. But uh, that's only because he's the only young actor I know. You know, I was thinking of Ryan, young Ryan Gosling, and I say I can this, see be- it. yeah, because I've, 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 Ryan Gosling was a kid actor, and he was played young Hercules. It was a TV show I watched a lot. It was in the <laughs> Xena. It was tight. Her- yeah, it was good. It was good. It was good. And he would definitely, a very young Ryan Gosling could definitely be a good, you know, kid. Just this kind of, you know, very young um, piece of shit, you can tell. Yeah. Just that something about him is just fucking off. He might look good and be handsome, but you can tell he's just kind of an asshole. And I think and- R- a kid Ryan Gosling had that. Supposedly in real oh. life, too. A weird comparison, a weird comparison here. The kid reminds me a lot of the horror and tragedy of a figure like uh, XXX Tentacion, where if you're if you're if you're old oh. enough, you look you look back and you're like, this person is awful, is doing awful things, is okaying awful things, is hanging out with like not awful people in the sort of conservative sense, but like people who are doing vicious things to people who are underprotected but then part of you is like but they're so they're so young and it's harder as you get older to get over that hurdle of like they're so young and like but but you look at what they're doing and you're like no it is still it's like anything the kid has done is legitimately awful but by the end of the novel he's like 15 and a half maybe and yeah and so it's this horrible thing of like you don't know whether to be angry at the structures that swallowed this kid up or the fact that he let himself get swallowed. Like, it doesn't... The further from that age you get, the less comfortable witnessing something like that is because the ease of saying... Because you look at your own life and the amount of time that passed and how you may have been shittier when you were young. I mean, obviously, never to that level. Yeah. <laughs> you, you'd, be, yeah. you'd be murdered. <laughs> but, you know, and it becomes very, very difficult to, to read a tale of someone as brutal and as like disturbingly awful as the kid as an adult man. When I first read the book, I was about like 20 or 21 and I was in like the darkest period of my entire life. And it was just, I needed a book that would match what I was feeling and going through. And someone's like, that's blood Meridian. And I read it and I was like, that's what I did. After a savagely crying, I was like, okay, I feel a lot better. Cause I'm, you glimpse this greater darkness and you're like, no, actually I'm fine. I think I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. (laughs) I comparatively, I think I'm doing okay. Um, but yeah, rereading it as a 30 year old man, it's yeah. Like it's, it's like, it's heart stopping and it's like depressing tones of witnessing someone so young do, do things as awful as the kid does in the book. You know, I was thinking I was going to make a joke post that if you were going to make a film um, today with about, you know, Blood Meridian, you would cast 
Kanye West as Judge Glanton because he's the closest <laughs> figure in pop culture to a uh, you know a Gnostic, uh, Gnostic mystic uh, mischievous kind of trickster to Judge Glanton, and then you have Six uh, Nine as the kid. I I could see it. Sadly, I could see it. <laughs> I mean, and it it would it would fit in a really sort of dark way. Is that and that's sort of I think. Um, a comparison, a good comparison point for sort of the, let's be cliche here, the power of literature, um, especially sort of the more liminal lyrical end is it's by the fact that the story is so abstract, it feels more like you're reading tonal archetypes engaging with one another rather than specific people in a specific place that it becomes very easy to feel it as a rubric that can just overlay onto, onto the world around you. Yeah, absolutely. Like this, I mean, that's why I, I I think that's a lot of reason why people say it's unfilmable because it, in a lot of ways, it doesn't have like a plot and character development. The characters are kind of the same at the beginning and at the end. I guess maybe the kid is slightly less easily led by the end. He he does have a moment where he, I wouldn't say turns on the judge, but stops. You know. But looks out for himself and instead of doing what the judge says. But for the most part, this is just this novel doesn't follow, you know, the rules of storytelling or the structure of storytelling. And I feel like a lot if you took if I took a copy of the book and like just chopped whole chapters of it, a lot of people would still get a lot of the same thing from it if by reading yeah. a chopped up version of it. It's a very – so while we can think of a lot of books as like a hologram where it's layer by layer by layer and you only get the total picture when you put all the layers together in all the right order, I agree with you. This book is like a solid block. Every moment of it is the same as every other moment. Yeah. And the power of it is when you get that much of it, it's like a, like a punch right to the nose. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you totally that you can you can pull out like literally any – any excerpt and hand it to someone and be like, this is it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're right that it's like totally not how a novel is supposed to be written. Like if I was, if I was back in my university days of being a MFA and proposed to my tutors that I was going to write a novel where kind of so much happens every second and really nothing happens. Yeah, it's, it's like it's like in metal. There's just a blast beat going on for ages in the same riff. <laughs> it's I, they'd throw me out the course. But then, you know, I'd point out that one of the greatest novels of the twentieth century was kind of written like that. You know, and the playing close, Yeah, the closest thing to it that I saw outside the novel is the first season of Empire, because what they I did. It, yeah. it's it's a really amazing thing because it was a really popular show and I couldn't understand why and it's because they basically hit the fast forward button on all the prestige soap opera bullshit. They would have so much happen in every episode you couldn't take your eye off. If you were watching any Netflix show, like there was one, you know, subplot where 
the guy's girlfriend was going behind his back to help this competitor, right? In a regular, you know, TV show, that would be a plot that would last for like three or four episodes. They would follow up with it. She would finally get caught in the season finale. In Empire, it lasted for one commercial break. Like she started <laughs> betraying him and then they found out the next commercial break and moved on to the next thing. And so I'm just saying, Lee Daniels, Maybe, maybe he should be doing the Blood Meridian film. Yeah, and definitely not the people who made the Netflix Marvel shows because they had the exact opposite thing. Yes. Nofrio or not, who was <laughs> very, very good as Kingpin. It was a, it, there were great performances throughout that show, but then it just, like, they need to be about a quarter of the episodes. Yeah. yeah. And I'm kind of glad they were cancelled because they were really disappointing. Like, you didn't I, take... got, I got bad news if you expect them to stay cancelled for long. Oh yeah, I know. I'm fully on the ship. Like, yeah, Disney's Netflix that no one's going to watch and is going to like single-handedly revive U Torrent. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a good point. It, we, we, it's Torrent's we, time, baby. We're coming yes. back. <laughs> yeah, never got rid of U Torrent on my on my computer. I, I know. I knew I'd need it one day. I knew. <laughs> I, I knew Hollywood yeah. would fuck up and <laughs> would make me would splinter into like ten different Netflix fiefdoms. And I'd have to start torrenting shows again, which I already do with like Man in High Castle and Amazon shows because I'm not going to get an Amazon Prime membership. I think this relay, I think Blood Meridian relays a thing that I was bringing up to someone recently is that like as as a writer myself, I've been getting more and more interested in or let me start with I've been getting less and less interested in plot-oriented things where events happen and people change because in a lot of ways that's that can do certain things and there's there's nothing wrong with that but they start to all kind of feel like they're doing the same thing at a certain point regardless of where you start or what kinds of characters you have or what kind of situations it feels the whole um stasis tension or conflict tension uh climax resolution thing starts to make all all conflict feel the same and that doesn't that doesn't feel like it matches reality much meanwhile there's sorry i'm outside right now <laughs> like slice of life things uh it, for one period point or something like blood marine where it's this consistent primal sludgy mass um your your example of like a blast beat um and like a single riff works really well there um has this totally different character where you can really home in like a like a like a really good poem on all the specific details of this this one thing by the fact that it never changes it doesn't shift time passes it's not different um like you pick it up and it feels like you must have missed the beginning because horrible things are already happening but by the it ends and they're still going on. You're like, no, I guess that's just, it has this really unique power to it that, um, and ha someone also with a fine arts degree, like a lot of those institutions kind of miss that because they have this very, it's kind of deliberately constrained view of what literature is and what it's supposed to do and how to teach you to do it. That sometimes misses like, this is a megaton hammer. Ironically, Moby Dick is very much the same. It, that book is so glacial that, and if you summarize the events of the book, they get ready to go whaling. They go whaling, and then a uh, a whale kills them. 
that it doesn't make sense why it's so big. And it's precisely because you just are swimming in this like, uh, let's fucking do it. You're swimming in a vast ocean of metaphor. Um, but uh, Whoa. Yeah, um, I paid a lot of money for this. Let me do it. <laughs> um, but it, uh, Blood Meridian's much the same. It's like you get sort of sucked into this horrible swamp and just slowly drown. And there's this uh, doom metal as a, as a musical genre is sort of a uh, an exploration of that conceit that there is a unique power you don't get when there's lots of parts to a song and lots of change and lots of motion that you can only get when it's very long and very ah, minimal. Yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah. Hell yeah. You, you know, you can get the same thing uh, for if you're not into metal. I don't know why you're listening to the podcast if you're not, <laughs> but if you yeah. aren't, maybe some progressive trance kind of can get the That's same true. vibe. Yeah. Some, you know, LSG, Oliver Lee type thing, where it's just, you know, you're listening to the same beat for seven minutes with minimal changes, and the, the mood that that gets you in is just something that is, you know, incomparable, aside from um, Black Metal and Cormac McCarthy. I would say Cormac McCarthy hates you and wants you to feel bad. <laughs> capital Y, you, you, just any anyone, anyone, including himself, he yeah. hates you and he wants you to feel bad. Episode title. <laughs> but you know, ultimately, his books always make me feel good. That's the, that's his <laughs> eternal struggle. Like he's finding the the part he's he's you know, he's at his typewriter coming up with something that he knows will make everyone make the world hate it and hate him and he, but he just keeps on making these masterpieces and everybody loves it like i just imagine him tearing his fucking hair out it's like god damn it i wanted them to hate this i wanted them to dislike it now oprah's fucking calling me god damn son of a bitch. I, it must have hurt him so much that oprah wanted to make the road like the book club of the thing i the book her in her book club i'm like just that's just like you know putting roses on top of a decaying corpse so that's basically yeah, that's what like she uh, did her picking vague vicarness to be on her show or something but um yeah it's entirely incompatible with the aesthetic he, yeah I, I haven't seen that interview she did with him but he must it's, be like squirming throughout that he's all right because he, you can tell he kind of just doesn't give a shit so he's not like in a he's he's not in a good mood or a bad mood he's just kind of like whatever the fuck i guess oprah's gonna interview me now and he's just like a crotchy old man by then who just like doesn't really give a shit um so he he does all right in it but it is uh funny and entertaining she's just like sitting there trying to fill him with her spirit and he's just like not having it but she just keeps going because she's oprah and she's a sociopath too <laughs> I'm going to be honest, I'm going to avoid watching this because I already, as a metal fan, have to have to distance myself from too many things because I find out the people who make them are racist. And I feel like, in my gut, don't quote me on this, I feel like Cormac McCarthy is probably racist. So I don't want, <laughs> I don't want to know yes or no. I just want to leave that. This is one of those things like hideous gnosis. I don't, gnosis would be hideous here. Leave me in a state of beautiful unknowing. <laughs> 
it's 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 possible. I mean, like he, he writes, he certainly writes a lot of racist characters. There's a lot of racism in this book. I mean, that that should be self-evident because yeah. it is about slaughtering Native Americans. But even within the group, uh, there's this one. There's a lot of racism. It's now, always to be the fair, nigger. yeah. To be fair, a lit thing that happens is a black yes. guy gets called the N word and he yes. just murders the guy who did it. Never in. No one yeah. punishes him because they're like, that guy was starting shit and he, he ate shit. That's how he, that goes. And then they yeah. just keep going. <laughs> you know, it's, so, it's so casual. It's one of my favorite scenes in the novel um, where they're sitting at the fire and this guy, you know, says, you need, nigger, you need to go someplace else. You don't sit at the fire with a white man because that's what you don't. But they're in here. They're out in the badlands, you know, outside of society, outside of those rules. And the black man says to him, is that your final call? And then and yet he says yes, goddammit. it. So he walks. The black man walks away, comes back with a machete, chops his head clean off. Cormac McCarthy describes that his body sits there still without moving, with his hands on there, like he's some you know priest um, preparing for a ceremony. Like it is fucking brutal and very metal, and uh, nobody else does anything about it because they just are too tired too far gone too separated from you know the rest of you know humanity society and he and uh, Cormac McCarthy also suggests that all right this is like you know some ceremony that had to take place before we moved on like some blood had to be spilled before we can get to the next chapter in our journey and that and he uh, he made the mistake he thought that the old rules of society applied and so he had to die until you prepare to let everything go and be as savage as possible you even have to let go of racism you even have to let go of racism in order to survive in this uh, this ne- this realm that the Glanton gang is in. Yeah, the judge talks about that the the way uh, war and death and suffering just bring us all together in the end. There's no like racism when you're just out slaughtering everybody in the whole world. Yes, it's just yeah, it's just blood. It, mm-hmm. And uh, that's a kind of nice place to leave off, because yep. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's 2018 summed up. Yeah, that's that's it. That's uh, that's that's show. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So we're gonna play out with a another uh, track that kind of I I slept on in 2018. That kind of circle back to at the end of the year. It's uh a band called City Hunter and they they kind of pull the same move as Cormac McCarthy it's it's um it's a hardcore band but with like i guess black metal production and aesthetics and vocals but uh based on the i based on this like self-created 80s slasher movie monster they created called City Hunter and uh on stage the the guy wears a ski mask and carries it like a bowie knife and i think some people have been accidentally stabbed at their shows oh sweet um, yeah so you don't get that in uh music anymore you know you need more you need some bring it back a little danger in it bring back to like those early ramstein shows where they would set the place on fire with like napalm spewing uh, metal dicks and stuff that's kind of what we need so uh yeah this is 
a song called Silhouette of Death off Deep Blood by City Hunter. It's fucking cool, and they are sick. And go see them live, wear your stab vest. And yeah, they're cool as fuck. Uh, but so we'll play it on that. But uh, Leslie, where can people find you? And uh, why should they go and listen to St- Struggle Session? Which they should. Yes, absolutely. You should listen to Struggle. You should listen to Struggle Session. You should subscribe to Struggle Session at Patreon.com/slash Struggle Session, where we have a bunch of bonus episodes, deep diving into all sorts of literature. Hey, if you like Cormac McCarthy, you probably like Bray Snellis. We got a great episode about some of BE's uh, work, as well as Philip K. Dick. We love talking about you know cool stuff with good poly with our good leftist politics uh, with it. Uh, I, I know a lot of people, um, uh, the big thing that we talk about is Star Wars and the recent, you know, degradation of Star Wars. And if you are, if you watched the last few Star Wars movies and you didn't like them and you went on YouTube to find out why, all you get are reactionaries talking about, you know, how the movie's bad, yes, but also why it's the SJW's fault. We don't do that. We give you good leftist reasons to hate Disney and what they've done to Star Wars. So that's why you should support Struggle Session. Right. And heretically, you also think the DC movies are better than Marvel movies. I would not say that. Batman vs. Superman is better than them all. Most of them are bad. But Batman vs. Superman is the only one that's like an actual movie with shots and camera work and themes and not just like people in Atlanta on the, uh, in front of a green screen. Okay. Yeah. Check out Struggle Session to find out that. Um, can't say I agree with 100% of your takes, especially – I kind of like the new Star Wars is. I uh, do but- too. Yeah, so you're outnumbered on this show at least. So. Now I do. Now yeah. I do actually like Batman v Superman a lot, and right, that. Cool. So I finally I have an know. ally. I oh, it it is it is uh, it's like a bad Cormac McCarthy in that there's so much there's so much in it. It's like a big primordial soup, and Zack Snyder isn't smart enough to take advantage of all the really like good and interesting ideas that he that he. Oh, you're breaking up there. Oh, you've, you've totally broken up. You've been overwhelmed by Zack Snyder's terrible movie making. Yeah, you've, you've turned into a primordial suit. Is, is, uh, no! Oh. That, that was all lost. All gone. We'll never <laughs> discover why Zack Snyder is good. Uh, he's not he's good. That's not what I said. Well, it may have been, so we'll, we'll never know. That's true. We'll never so, know. Langdon Sack Snyder stand confirmed. Uh, so yeah, we'll play out with uh, City Hunter, our last ever song of the hell year of 2018. Do go read Blood Meridian. Uh, it will make you feel good. And um, yeah, come back in the new year for An- uh, Langdon's blasphemous anime episodes where he ruins my show that I've worked so hard on. I'm gonna, I'm gonna ruin it. Yep. Really? <laughs>